This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Isn't it bullshit to have to question where your food comes from? At Vital Farms, you can trace your pasture-raised eggs all the way back to the source, the pasture. On the side of each pasture-raised carton of eggs, you'll find the name of the farm where your eggs were laid. And when you look the farm up on their website, you'll get a peek at all the sunshine, fresh air, and open space the hens enjoy. Learn more and find out where to buy them at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the credit card created by Apple. It gives you unlimited daily cash back that you can now choose to grow in a high-yield savings account that's built right into the Wallet app. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone and start growing your daily cash with savings today. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings is available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility requirements. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Member FDIC. Terms apply. It's time to say goodbye to hold music and say hello to fast customer support with Service Cloud. With trusted AI and data working together, you can skip long wait times and deliver efficient, personalized service right away. All while keeping support costs low and more customers happy. Reimagine your customer support with the number one AI CRM for service. Learn what's possible at salesforce.com slash products slash service. This episode is brought to you by Klaviyo, the platform that powers smarter digital relationships. With Klaviyo, you can activate all your customer data in real time. Connect seamlessly with your customers across all channels. Guide your marketing strategy with AI-powered insights, recommendations, and automated assistance. Deliver experiences that feel individually designed at scale and grow your business faster. Power smarter digital relationships with Klaviyo. Learn more at klaviyo.com slash Spotify. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash Spotify. I'm Jason Palmer, one of the hosts of The Intelligence, The Economist's daily current affairs podcast. The Economist's award-winning shows make sense of what matters, from our special series on China's president to our weekly podcasts on business, technology, and American politics. Our journalists provide fair, in-depth reporting on the events shaping the world. Search for Economist Podcasts Plus and sign up to our free one-month trial. LinkedIn presents. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, where your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. Where we share original research, explore industry trends, and interview executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We hope you join us often for practitioner-oriented content around all things related to leadership, HR, talent management, organizational development, and change management. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Enjoy the Human Capital Innovations podcast. Enjoy ad-free listening by going to the Patreon page, and please consider contributing even at the producer or sponsorship level. And please leave a review. Thank you for your support. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Nani Vishwanath. About lesser-known ways in which organizations can focus on a more inclusive employee experience.
Nani Vishwanath, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. It is a pleasure to be with you. You're joining us from the Seattle area. I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah. And today we're going to be talking about lesser known ways in which organizations can focus on a more inclusive employee experience. Of course, we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging a lot. Uh, that's gained more traction over the last several years, over the last decade. Uh, but I, th I think many leaders are still grappling with, wrestling with how they can actually go about uh, engaging in this space. Uh, there's still a lot of nervousness around engaging in the space. So I'm hoping today, as we have this conversation, perhaps we'll um, provide the audience with a few tidbits and nuggets that uh, are perhaps a little bit different than what you, the way you thought about it before and give you something that you can take away and, and try within your teams and within your organizations. As we get started, I wanted to share Nani's bio with everybody. Nani Vishwanath is a dynamic consultant, speaker, educator, writer, and marketer in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. She works with an organization called the Courage Collective, which brings a focus to more inclusive employee experiences. She has been deeply involved in social change work for the last 10 years, with experience ranging from higher education to tech and retail sectors. Her personal mission is to elevate the voices of the unheard, and she has developed a way for working that centers the perspectives of historically excluded communities. Nani is passionate about developing empathy-based conversations that push past the status quo toward real and sustained change. She is also a proud first-generation American with South Asian roots and is a working parent as well. And I could go on. She's been published many places uh, as a real thought leader in the space. Nani, anything else you would like to add or highlight for the audience before we dive on in? That was a great summary. Thanks so much for sharing. Yeah, you bet. All right. Well, let's go ahead and lay the groundwork now. Uh, you've been working in the social change space and particularly within the diversity, equity, and inclusion space now for quite a while. What got you into this work? Um, it, it can be a fraught work. It can be at times, you know, overwhelming. It can be a heavy work to be a part of. Um, so what got you into it and what has it helped sustain you to be um, an advocate in this space? You know, I was a part of this work before this work became a clear part of many corporations, um, and it just wasn't known as diversity, equity, and inclusion in the way that it is today. Um, my past, my my education was in the higher education space, a lot of focus on social justice, but really was about who are these places designed for? What are these systems really hoping to perpetuate? And who are they leaving out in the equation? And so for a long time, I have had a critical lens on many places, whether it be higher education, whether it be corporate America, whether it be the systems we use in between all of those types of workplaces and wondering who are these things built for. Now, of course, in 2020, I was um, at a tech company working in HR, kind of trying to grow some diversity and inclusion efforts from the ground. Many folks like myself do this on top of their day job because there wasn't resourcing or budget to really support DEI efforts in a workplace. So I was pushing some work uh, from the ground up, trying to build a strategy on top of my day job, leading an employee resource group. And then 2020 happened, the murder of George Floyd happened, and there was this sudden conversation about what is diversity, equity, and inclusion? What is anti-racism? What is our responsibility collectively when it comes to this, this conversation? And I suddenly realized that what I wanted to do was what I'd always wanted to do all along, was create cultures where people really felt like they could be seen, heard, and feel like they truly felt like they belong. And the 
conversation in 2020 sort of galvanized me and others to jump into that more actively. And so I started to think about opportunities to really lead that conversation rather than pushing it up a hill. Where were ways that we could actually create cultures of belonging, where diversity and inclusion was prioritized from the jump? And so I had the pleasure of joining my colleagues at the Courage Collective, where we truly believe in the power of empathy and the power of inclusion and work with companies ranging from small startups to large Fortune 500 organizations to bring that to the center of their work as well. And it started with a few clients. It's grown quite a bit since then. Um, and then you asked what keeps me in it. It's just that that overarching commitment to, to helping people feel seen and heard. You mentioned my personal mission statement is about elevating the voices of the unheard. That's it for me. And having been one of the only in many workplaces that I'm in and many uh, situations that I'm in, I know what it's like to not be heard. And so there's a personal commitment as well. Yeah, 2020 was a big hot mess, wasn't it? Um, In in addition to all the COVID stuff and all the political um, divide that uh, was related to it, but you had all of the, the social unrest, you had George Floyd and and every all, all the conversations around that and i am on the one hand i'm very pleased to see that the conversations have um been pushed into more organizations because uh, of these types of incidents um but we're still a long way off from actually making a meaningful impact in these organizations to truly create an inclusive culture a, a culture of belonging um, and the Courage Collective, I, I just find that name intriguing uh, because I do think this space to navigate in this space willfully takes quite a bit of courage. Uh, maybe talk just for a minute a little bit more about that and and what kind of courage you feel it takes for, you know, people like me, a straight cisgender white dude, you know, versus other marginalized populations, um, people of color, uh, LGBT, whatever um, the category, you know, why is courage an important component to this? Yeah, I see courage as integral from all the levels, from a personal level, from an institutional level, from a societal level. What we are doing right now is hoping to turn over centuries of oppression and systems that were built with only a few people in mind for success. And so it takes courage to tackle that. It takes courage even to confront that. And so from a personal level, for folks to think, how did I get where I am? And why is that? And is that potentially to do with my identities or the fact that how American workplace is built is for me to thrive potentially and for others to find themselves on the margins. And so it takes courage to one, recognize that in yourself, to build awareness about your context and your surroundings, and then what you're going to change. And I think One of the things we really saw in 2020 was a lot of companies approach the conversation from a place of fear and from a reactive standpoint. It was not necessarily, okay, we're in this for the long haul and we're probably not going to see change or any impact to our bottom line or even our numbers in the next year, five years, maybe even 10 years. That takes courage to say we're in it, we're going to sit with the mess, and we're going to work through it because what we're doing is undoing centuries of harm, right? It's not going to turn around right away. But when companies came from this place of fear and reactivity, people burn out. The long-term effectiveness is less impactful. Yeah, and and that really is a big 
uh, piece of this, you were talking about your own experience in the past where you're doing your normal day job. And then because you're a woman of color, you're kind of expected um, to then be the, the the one that everyone turns to or to be the advocate or to to be the one pushing initiatives or uh, uh, to, to really spin up these types of uh, strategies and approaches within organizations without funding, without extra support. Uh, I mean, it's no wonder people burn out. It's an incredible, I, I can only imagine it's got to be incredibly exhausting. Um, I find it exhausting and I am the guy sitting here with all the privileges um, that make, you know, life more comfortable for me. And, and so as, as leaders, we need to, to recognize first and foremost, you know, not only do we have systems of oppression, uh, systematic, uh, inequities embedded throughout society, throughout our organizations that need to be resolved, but we also just need to think like where the rubber meets the road, just like workload, just like basic, elements around how we want to have these conversations so that we're not putting the burden on the very people that are the ones already at a disadvantage. Cause that just further puts you at a disadvantage, right? Totally. Totally. The thing I would love to see more leaders do is own when their strategy or their plan didn't work. And what we're doing in the world of diversity, equity, inclusion, and more broadly, the employee experience, we're at a really interesting inflection point societally as it comes to the world of work. And we're doing a lot of building from scratch and trying new things. And just at the base of innovation, there will be failure. And I would love for more leaders to take the courageous attempt of saying, we tried this, it didn't work, or we had our... Um, our employee resource groups lead our DEI efforts because we thought they cared so much. But what happened was then all of the efforts went on those most marginalized and they burned out. So we are reevaluating our process or this was our initial goal when it came to DEI, but it's not actually what we want to do. So we're going to pivot. Let's talk about that more. I think there could be so much learning in that human piece that we often miss. Yeah, and I guess we've already started to touch on it, but what do you see as some of the biggest pitfalls that organizations, you know, well-intentioned leaders, well-intentioned organizations end up stepping in, you know, these potholes along the way? Um, what are some of the biggest ones? And then how do we go about addressing them, acknowledging them and rectifying them, especially when, you know, traditional notions of leadership is don't show weakness, don't, you know, apologize, blah, blah, blah. Like, if if that's our culture and our mentality, it makes it even harder um, to pivot and to recognize when things didn't go well or to at least acknowledge it to be able to move in a different direction. Uh, so again, what are some of those the biggest pitfalls that you've seen and how can we really encourage leaders to own it and to use it as a learning opportunity to to grow into this space? Yeah, absolutely. I think just fundamentally leaders will have to lean into that vulnerability. I saw a recent study that 40% of Gen Z you know, employees are looking for accountability and transparency when it comes to leadership. They're looking for leaders to own when they messed up. And I think that will just become more of the ask in the common workplace. And so it's an exciting time, but it's a scary time because to your point, for a long time, that was seen as failure, right? For leaders to show that vulnerability. Um, in terms of common pitfalls when it comes to diversity and inclusion, a few that come to mind. One, I think when leaders haven't actually taking the time and space to make a personal connection to the why. We often just say, 
yes, X company, we care about diversity and inclusion. It's imperative to our culture, you know, some sort of statement, but there hasn't been that time and space to actually think about it. Why, why is that important to your organization? Why is it important to you as a leader when that can be built? And it can be a number of different reasons. It will be much more authentic and it might sound so simple, but so many people miss that step. And that trickles down to the frontline employee who feels like their company doesn't care about diversity and inclusion because they feel that inauthenticity. They feel that lack of con- connection. So that's one piece. Um, another piece is... Can I just comment on that real yeah. quick? W- one thing that frustrates me that I hear, you know, I, I on the one hand, I get it. I, I get when you're disrupting the status quo... Um, those who are in positions of power and privilege feel threatened often, yeah. right? And so I've seen lots of organizations where you have, you know, the the straight white dudes who are all feeling all of a sudden like they're the ones with people coming after them. Like, yeah. no, we're just trying to, you know, equalize opportunity and give everyone a fair shake. Um, but so on the one hand, if, if the organization and leadership doesn't have a clear why, and they don't articulate that well, it does two things. It does what you just described, like th- those people who are from those marginalized groups, they don't feel like it's authentic. They don't really, it just, so it's not going to have the impact you're going for anyways, but also, th- you know, the, the other group, the, the, the group that has the privilege that feels like they are the ones having to give something up. Mm-hmm. Um, they also don't understand the why. And so then they start to spin uh, notions of, you know, whatever, I don't know, what, whatever rhetoric you want to use to to try to explain away these types of things and, and say, oh, it's just a PR thing or whatever. And so they don't buy into it the same way that they should. Uh, and yeah. ultimately, you, it's, it's just not going to be impactful uh, because there's no clear articulation of that vision of what you want and are aspiring for and the why behind it. Uh, so totally. that why it truly is very important. It's so important. And I think we just have a tendency societally to put things in a binary. You're either the good guy or the bad guy, or you're the one being impacted or you're not. But truthfully, when we can really look at cultures of inclusion, they benefit all of us, even those of us who are closest to power or privilege. We too have had to be conforming and changing just based on our norms and status quo in society. And so when we can get people away from this mindset of, I have to give things up, or this will negatively impact me to instead, this could collectively make our experience better. That can lessen some of that shame, defensiveness and guilt and move towards progress. Yeah. It's the difference between a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset, Uh, you know, a zero sum game fixed pie versus let's expand the pie. Let's create more opportunity for everybody. And that's a hard thing for some people to wrap their heads around, but yeah, if we can get there, uh, it, it can make all the difference. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Other pitfalls. Yeah. 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 A couple that come to mind. Um, one um, big one is that diversity and inclusion often is siloed into HR um, at a lot of organizations that do have DEI. It's still not entirely common. Maybe there's be one person or it will be, like I said earlier, of a set of volunteer roles. It gets put into HR and then kind of siloed into two main tracks, one being around recruitment And it often becomes really tethered to a quota or some sort of percentage that they're looking at for people of color or other marginalized identities. We can already see the the pitfalls that will happen there when that becomes the focus. And the other track that often gets elevated is around maybe a one-off education, like a unconscious bias training or a DEI 101 that they'll put people through there's plenty of evidence to show that that doesn't work, right? It's not going to change. It's not going to change cultures. 
where we see cultures actually change and evolve is when diversity and inclusion is integrated throughout the business. So we're not just talking about HR. We're talking about your product design and development. We're talking about your marketing strategy. We're talking about your supplier and how you get your suppliers. We're talking about even your finance goals and how you set out your strategy. All of that has elements of who gets to thrive, who doesn't, who's this for, who's this not for. And when, when companies can really embrace that, then you can see a change. Um, But it's so common for folks to not see it as an enterprise wide focus, but just one silo into HR. Yeah. And just as an example of that, I've actually shared this example on previous episodes of the podcast, but it's, it's suited to bring up now again, you know, I've seen organizations when they're trying to pull DEI stuff into the recruiting process and the hiring process. um, I mean, there's lots of good things you can do there and that you should do there uh, for sure. Um, But if you're kind of giving a surface level approach to all of this, what ends up happening is oftentimes you end up disproportionately putting the burden back on (laughs) individuals from those marginalized groups. Um, So I'm thinking one particular organization where they had a huge gender imbalance and inequities um, throughout the organization. And so they made this this blanket um, requirements that all hiring committees now would have to be chaired by a woman, um, that uh, women had to uh, make up, you know, if, if at least half, if not more than half of the hiring committee. Um, now, on the surface, that sounds great, especially when you've had women without a voice uh, over a long period of time. But remember, this you know this particular organization is disproportionately male already. Right. So that means you have a very small number of women who now have to basically lead out on every single search. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, and the, the tremendous amount of workload that goes along with that. So the intention was good. The intention was mm-hmm. give women a voice, allow them to be involved in the process, and hopefully that will lead to more female hires. The of course the negative outcome of all of that was you're burning people out because you're just churning through people, um, a limited number of people have to do all the the heavy lifting, which also then disproportionately negatively impacts them for things like promotions and, and yeah. other advancement opportunities, because they're overburdened doing all this stuff instead of working on other projects and doing other things that might be able to further their career. Uh, so we, get, yes. we just got to be super careful about that. But when you start to get beyond some of those just very specific tactics, and you get into more of a holistic systemic strategy around embedding it into all areas like you were talking about um then you can rec- you can start to recognize those those perhaps the um the unintended consequences that might come from certain policy decisions that you're making right Yes, absolutely. It's hard, but you have to take an ecosystem approach with the example you just gave. Sure, maybe we have more representation on the hiring panel, but what is who's the actual decision maker? What's the criteria mm-hmm. when it comes to selecting a candidate? My guess is all of that is rooted in bias as well. And so if we don't look at the entire ecosystem and we just look at parts, we'll continue to see that bias and discrimination perpetuate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's now spend the rest of our time and talk about some of these lesser known ways. Uh, you've already talked about systemic and holistic types of approaches generally, but let's dig in. What what are some lesser known ways that organizations can really start to focus in on more inclusive employee experience? 
Yeah, at the Courage Collective, we take a look with organizations kind of throughout the employee life cycle. So starting at before they're hired, when they get hired, throughout their entire experience, and then as they depart, what are those moments where people can feel like they belong? And what are those moments where they may feel like this isn't the place for me? A really simple quote that we come back to often is from Dr. Crystal Jones. She actually tweeted it and I use it all the time. She says, there's a big difference between the idea all are welcome here. And this was created with you in mind. And it that is, is so good. That, it's that, so there's good. such a difference. <laughs> there's such a difference, right? And we all have been in cultures that are an all are welcome here mentality where we know when we get there, we have to shed parts of ourselves, or we have to fit in or conform in order You're to You're welcome thrive. as long as you look and act like us. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so as we think about that entire employee life cycle, when it comes to the hiring process, when it comes to promotions or performance management, even when it comes to culture building, when you get together as a, as a company in person or virtually, who is it built for and who is left out? And just using that simple equation can really help you think about things. So a really simple idea that we've been working with organizations on is just in this current environment of hybrid versus in-person versus remote work, organizations are looking at ways to get people engaged for in-person community building. And it's so interesting how organizations kind of go with a playbook. They're like, why wouldn't people want to all come together for happy hour where we sing karaoke, drink, and XX, uh, this kind of standard playbook of what it looks like to have fun. And then when we ask the questions of who's that really built for, right? The working parents who have to go after school to go get their kids from school, the folks who don't drink for whatever reason that might be, faith tradition, their own experience, their own backgrounds, right? Who are we leaving out? Um, the people who are neurodivergent and that kind of social experience can feel so overwhelming. That is not maybe what culture building looks like, but when we start to ask those questions about who is this built for, we can really make something more unique and more appealing for more people. Um, so that's just one example. When it comes to the hiring portion, we talked often with organizations about their interview processes and the, even things like the job descriptions and some of those code words that we have just taken as like, social jargon, like we're looking for rock stars or go-getters. And what does that actually mean? Um, do people see themselves as that? Uh, we know based on research and uh, that women will be very less likely to apply for jobs that they aren't a hundred percent qualified for, right. Or they haven't had the experience, whereas men may go for things that they think they have the potential for. Um, so all of that is baked into the experience, but unless you sit and pull it apart, and really think about how this could impact people, then it'll just keep going. And so I find a lot of joy and excitement in thinking about that with, with our clients, uh, looking at processes and actually seeing them light up and say, you know what, I've always hated this. For example, I've always hated the term professional. We always say like, you need to be professional. What does that mean? Let's ask some questions about that. It's, you know, it's spoiler alert filled with bias. <laughs> um, and uh, a lot of people have felt like they've had to change themselves in order to be quote unquote professional. So it's, it's liberating for everybody when we yeah. get to interrogate these things and pull them apart. Absolutely. We, we need to challenge the assumptions that have made up the systems uh, of how society and, and, and organizations work. Um, and I think that's one of the benefits of the pandemic is that it really gave us an opportunity in many ways to challenge you know, what we just took for granted, what many took for granted as, 
this is just the way it is. This is the best way to do it. And then we, all of a sudden we realize, well, wait a minute, it probably actually isn't the, the best way to do it. Uh, and again, I'm a straight cisgender white dude. So I know I have lots of layers of privilege. Um, but even with those privileges, you know, I've had experiences um, where I've seen, like you said, creating a culture of inclusivity and belonging benefits everybody. Mm-hmm. I've had experiences where I felt excluded. I'm a family man. I have six children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been explicitly told, you know, I've been passed over for promotions uh, because I'm too much of a family man mm-hmm. um, or whatever, or there, you know, like you said, happy hour, whatever. I don't drink. I have yeah. a family. I like, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do my best at work. I'm going to I'm going to hit it hard. I'm going to do great stuff. I'm going to collaborate with people, but guess what? I'm not going to spend all night going out to a bar and hanging out with people because I have a wife and kids and I want to spend time with them. That doesn't make me a bad employee. Right. And so just disrupting those simple little things can make a huge difference for everybody. That's what, you know, we, we empower everybody. We give everybody an opportunity um, to really thrive. Uh, and who doesn't want to be a part of an organization that's truly a belonging organization where, like yeah. you said, not, you're not just welcome. You don't just say all are welcome here, but no, truly everyone is needed, wanted, given an opportunity to contribute in meaningful ways each and every day. They're truly valued. That's where we all want to be. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately that's lacking in probably most organizations to some extent. And so we all have a lot of work to do here. Um, I think I think having aspirational goals is great, but we have to get past the aspirational goals. We have to get past the dialogue. We have to get moved in, move into action, systemic, holistic approaches, the policies, practices, procedures, the culture that's all embedded within the system um, that creates this type of environment, perpetuates either a toxic negative environment or can create the more positive one that we're trying to go for. So true. It's absolutely true. Well, Nani, this has just been a really great conversation. I know at the time I need to let you go, but before we wrap things up for today, I wanted to give you a chance to share with the audience how they can connect with you, find out more about your work, your team, and then give us the final word on the topic for today. Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on LinkedIn, Nani Vishwanath. That's the place where I'm often telling my stories or sharing my thoughts about American workplaces and what we could do better. You can follow the Courage Collective on LinkedIn on our website, thecouragecollective.co. And we also have a social media presence on Instagram. You can sign up for our newsletter there. Um, A final word about the topic. I think a lot of times when people hear diversity, equity, and inclusion, subconsciously, it puts up walls, defensiveness, and people get kind of prepped for this really heady academic conversation where they feel like they need to prove something. But what if we pivoted this to something more human, to something where actually we felt invited to a conversation to change things collectively, not to prove anything, just to make things better for all of us. So I invite people to think about what your own personal reaction is to the topic and try to think about one that's more human-centered. I love it. I love it. Human-centered diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging efforts. I think every organization needs it. I think every leader has um, some opportunity to do some uh, self-reflection, some soul-searching. Nani, it's been a real pleasure. I encourage the audience to reach out, get connected, find out more about what they about what you can do for them. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, enjoy ad-free listening by going to the Patreon page. And please consider contributing even at the producer or sponsorship level. And please leave a review. Thank you for your support.
Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.